real, real conversation, conversation and some hard truths. Hard truths. Gangs, Gangs, drugs, drugs and, guns. and guns. Giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. So welcome back, everybody. Nathan Rome is with you once again. Today, we're going to be talking about First Nation police services and Indigenous policing. And for that, we have the Chief of Police from the Sutina Nation Police Service, Keith Blake, on the program. Chief Blake served 24 years with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. He worked in areas across frontline policing, major crime investigations, federal drug unit, and also worked with the Integrated National Security Enforcement Team. Chief Blake worked in several different First Nations communities across Alberta. He has held positions from investigator to detachment commander and emergency response team leader. Chief Blake was sworn in on May 16th 2013 and serves as the current chief of police for Sutina and Chief Blake is invested in advocating for First Nations policing, raising awareness and supporting solutions related to the challenges and triumphs of Indigenous policing. So welcome Chief Blake. Thanks Nathan and uh, again thanks for the opportunity to have a conversation hopefully more related to uh, the challenges and successes of First Nation policing more than uh, who I am and what I do again, that might not be as interesting <laughs> for the for the listeners. <laughs> well, you know, what? Uh, yeah, a little part will get a background on you and talk about kind of your career because you had quite a career here, twenty four years, and now you're into serving where you are. Um, so we'll find out a bit about you, but you are the first person to be on the program to talk about these topics of First Nation policing, Indigenous policing. So um, I think we'll have a really good conversation. So maybe to just start off, can we talk about you? Where you, where do you come from and, and maybe go through a bit of your career? Sure. Um, my formative years were spent in the lower mainland uh, in BC. Uh, it was, again, a, a very a great place to grow up. Um, the community that I grew up in, in Delta, had its own municipal police service, the Delta Police. Um, Surrey had the RCMP. Of course, we have multiple police services across Vancouver area and, and in BC, uh, I'd always uh, I'd always envisioned myself uh, to serve in policing, even from a very young age. So uh, my schooling, my post-secondary was criminology, uh, again, with the hopes of getting into a career of policing. Uh, back in uh, the late 80s, uh, when I was applying, there were hiring freezes going on uh, across the nation, and it was a little bit more challenging than maybe today to uh, endeavor to get into policing. But uh, fortunately, I was accepted into the RCMP in 1990. Um, I, For my first post, if you will, um, in January of 1990, I went to uh, Montreal to learn French. So I was part of the French language training program there for eight months. Enjoyed uh, learning French as well as, as being exposed to uh, a city and province that I had never been to before. So that was a great experience. Then after that, went to, to Depot in Regina for training for six months and then uh, was posted to K-Division Alberta uh, for, and where I served my entire career. My first posting was in Fort McMurray, multiple post, postings thereafter and, and really had the, the good fortune to have experiences in frontline specialty units, different areas. Uh, even uh, my last was professional standards in the RCMP. 
So I think it it gave me an opportunity to be exposed to a number of different uh, spectrums within within policing, and mm-hmm. I think it really helped me understand uh, kind of the fulsome uh, approach that that I think everyone needs to take when we're looking at policing and and how we do that work. So I knew uh, I enjoyed my time in the RCMP, and and I just was looking for a new challenge. I was seeking something different, and. Uh, in 2003, uh, my my wife, who's also a police officer who did formerly serve as well in the RCMP, uh, she left the RCMP a few years before that and joined the Sutena Nation Police Service. She uh, She's from Six Nations in okay. Ontario and wanted to get back to the roots of, of community-based Indigenous policing and uh, started here. And then when I knew that I it would be beneficial for me to, to look at other opportunities as she encouraged me to apply to the Sutina Nation Police Service. Thankfully, I was accepted um, and uh, became the chief shortly thereafter. And again, it's it's been a, an interesting journey. It It's helped me understand the disparities and inequities that occur in uh, self-administered First Nation policing. Having experienced a very different um, situation in the RCMP, and it made me appreciate even more how important it is to fight for that equality, those, those uh, discriminatory practices that unfortunately are still here um, in order to ensure that our communities and First Nations that are served by self-administered Indigenous police services are equitable in what we're capable, able, and funded to do. So that's that's kind of the, the journey that got me here. And I've been fortunate enough to be here. I'm coming on 10 years, and it's certainly time is, has passed very quickly. Uh, but once again, very, very proud to be here. And, and we've just got an amazing group of people, both on the sworn and non-sworn side, who are very committed to this community, as well as delivering a, a policing model that I think is very culturally appropriate, very community-centered, mm-hmm. and really has a, a tendency to listen to the needs and, and the voice of community. So that's uh as, as brief as I think anyone really wants to hear. And, and I hope I at least laid some foundation of my journey to, to get to here at least. Mm-hmm. Well, can you um, maybe just elaborate a bit on the transition from the RCMP over to where you are now? And what rank did you end at with the RCMP? And what did you come into Sutina with? Sure, it was a corporal in the RCMP. Um, and then I applied and, and was successful in the sergeant position here in Sutena. And the former chief of police uh, was here probably about two or three months uh, while I first started and then departed. And then the position became open and I competed along with a number of other candidates, both uh, from inside this service and outside uh, for, for the chief of police position and very fortunate enough to, uh, to be chosen. Well, can you talk about the rank structure there and just maybe how many positions that you do have? Sure. Or how big of an or- organization overall too? Sure. When I when I started here, there was nine police officers. Um, we had constable, two sergeants, and a chief of police. Um, since that time, over the last uh, close to 10 years, we now have a police officer complement 26. We have uh, the rank of obviously constable continues. We have a corporal rank. We have a sergeant rank. We have an inspector rank. And we also have a uh, obviously a chief of police. So we have 26 sworn officers. And we also have a support cast and staff uh, 
that brings us to a full employment staff complement of 40. And how big of an area do you kind of cover? How many people might be in there? Well, it's for us, it's, it's difficult to put, I mean, the census will tell you it's a very small uh, percent or at least what has been indicated through uh, Canada census. Uh, there is about 2,400 band members that are registered here. Not all the band members live here, nor are all the people that live here band members, because of course we have marriages and, and spouses and mm. situations where we have non-nation members living here. We also, uh, in our service as of last year, we took over policing responsibility of Redwood Meadows, which is a non-Indigenous community to the West. That population is about uh, 1,100. And then we also have a visiting population, quite significant. If you look at uh, the Grey Eagle property here, which includes a, a hotel, a casino, an event center, if everything is hustling and bustling there, we could have 15,000 visitors um, with all of those three properties. If you're looking at the new development, which has been undertaken here, very uh, progressive. Uh, we have a Costco, we have a mall, we have two mm -hmm. car dealerships. Uh, we have, I mean, it's it's difficult to gauge, but a visiting population, we've done car counts um, on our one thoroughfare, and we're seeing about 30,000 vehicles visiting the area. Wow. Of course, not every vehicle has one person in it, nor does it have <laughs> five. So uh, it, at this point in time, I mean, our, our visiting population is very significant. Our actual community members uh, along with Redwood Meadows, we'd probably be looking at 4,000 or slightly under that. Wow. Okay. Um, one thing you bring up there with the Redwood Meadows, and um, maybe I'll get into it now just because it's mentioned, I don't want to forget it, but um, so you took over the policing for that area. Who used to police them? And then also, uh, you know, I never would have imagined that the First Nation Police Service would be expanding outside of the First Nation. So can you talk about maybe the dynamics around how that came about? Sure. The, uh, the police service of jurisdiction prior to our taking this over slightly over a year ago was the RCMP. Um, as we all know, in the province of Alberta, most communities, uh, smaller rural communities, have the RCMP as their police service. When there was discussions, uh, I mean, they've been going ongoing for a number of years while I, when I took, uh, took over as chief of police where the community uh, were, were seeing if there were other opportunities in public safety, community safety, and their policing model. And there had been some discussions for some time what that might look like, uh, what that was, in, and how it would potentially occur. The Redwood Meadows um, area is actually an area which is leased by the Corporation of Redwood Meadows from the nation. So it's traditional nation territory, although the people that live there are not nation members. Again, anyone can go there and, and buy a house, own some property, or at least mm -hmm. there's a lease in place. And there are some discussions there in the province of Alberta under the Provincial Police Service Agreement. Um, previously, any community under 5,000 did not pay for policing, which meant the policing provincial police service of jurisdiction, in this case, the RCMP would undertake that policing and there would be no charge to the community for that policing. Things hmm. have subsequently changed a bit with the uh, inclusion now of the RCMP Federation, where the cost of policing has gone up and some of that cost would be assumed by some of these communities, depending on their population and so on. But uh, it, we really got into earnest discussions along with our nation leadership about a year and a half, two years ago, 
Um, they wanted us to, to take over that responsibility. We have Western lands, which are just adjacent to Redwood Meadows. And, and our officers are out that way quite frequently. They always have been as a patrol our area. And we'd always uh, look at doing some patrols in the area if there were some concerns about prowlers or just the other things that, that maybe was more challenging for the Cochrane Detachment to deal with because of the distance. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do that. And uh, the discussions were is they wanted to to have our service take over that responsibility. So we had discussions with the RCMP how that could take place. They're very supportive of it. And uh, just over a year ago, uh, we took over that responsibility. We aren't receiving any additional funding, either from the province or or any anywhere else. We just thought it was important. And it, it actually was a if you want to talk about boosting morale within a within a service that you know we were chosen mm-hmm. to do the work, we were chosen because I think they appreciated our our community centered policing model, and so with that policing responsibility came a lot of pride, and uh, we've done a lot of great engagement with the community to determine what their needs are. Every community is different. Uh, what the Sutena Nation needs is not necessarily, or what they see as policing priorities may not be what we're seeing uh, in the Redwood Meadows sentiments. But we've done that and, and things are going very well. And uh, again, it was it was a true sense of pride. I, I think from my understanding, it's the first time that an Indigenous police service has taken over responsibility uh, to a to a community that's non-Indigenous. Yeah, yeah, it was a very, uh, I've never heard of that, a very unique uh, opportunity, I guess you would call it. When somebody um, is looking at police services to apply to, can anybody apply to your police service? Or is it, do you have to be, belong to a certain group or ethnicity? No, uh, you know, we, we, we fall under the Alberta Police Act, as do all police services outside the RCMP. Of course, they have their RCMP um, regulations and act. And, and so our recruitment is exactly what you in Edmonton and, and the service members there experience, mm. just like it would be in Lacombe, uh, Camrose, anywhere. Uh, so the standards that we must adhere to for the application process and the successful steps that need to be undertaken in order to have that person enter into a training environment is is the same. Uh, what we look for is when we're when we're doing our interviewing process, we we really try and encourage and and give those who are interested to police here an understanding of how we do our policing work and the model that we undertake, because it isn't the same. I think every community has to be looked at as unique and the way we engage our community is very different than anywhere else, even in other First Nations. Um, So we want to make sure that the investment is there, that Mm -hmm. they're understanding um, both the the things that are incredibly great about working in First Nations, also those challenges that I'm sure we'll speak to later, the inequities that are there, the pay disparities, the pension disparities, the benefit disparities, the restrictions that you have that others don't. Uh, but there are a lot of people who have that true interest in, in a community-centered policing model um, and also being involved in the community where uh, you just don't work here. You're actually attending celebrations and mornings and and all the things that really ingrain a service and its staff into the community. So again, there is no requirements other than what you would see in Edmonton, Calgary, anywhere else. Those um, minimum requirements that are needed to continue in the application process. <clears throat> but there is no requirement that someone must be Indigenous. There's no, uh, we, we think in, in our service that diversity is the key. Uh, I think when you get a diverse group of people from 
backgrounds that are very different, cultures that are different. I think it enhances our understanding and I think it brings us uh, closer and also recognizing with our new responsibilities when we're speaking of a more urban policing environment, when you start to have commercial development uh, that we currently do and will continue to grow, is we have to be seen by those visiting or taking part within our community to have diversity just like every other police service across this country. Mm-hmm. So again, it it isn't, uh, there's no really specific um, thing we look for. We recognize in First Nations, they truly want to see representation in their service, uh, Indigenous reputation uh, representation. They want to see their nation members being provided opportunities to police their community, if that's their desire. And that is something that we prioritize in looking for. Um, we can, looking at just a, a breakdown of complement, we uh, we have just over 60% of our service members self-identify as Indigenous. Mm-hmm. About 70% of our staff uh, completely self-identify as Indigenous. We've got a, a 30% um, female officer complement. And I think it's about a 55% um, female total complement. Again, the mis- mixture between that sworn and non-sworn. Mm-hmm. Well, and maybe you kind of touched on it already, but... Um, what would be the difference between your service and, say, uh, an RCMP detachment in a smaller area? Because I'm thinking there might be a lot of similarities. I can see the differences between, you know, if you come to the, the bigger centers like Edmonton or Calgary, where maybe the patrol guys don't have as much time to be in the community. You're called to call. There's, you, know, you come in, there's 40 calls waiting. And when you leave, there's 40 calls still and you took 20 yourself. But um, when you're in those smaller RCMP detachments, he's like, they're very community centered. So is that kind of the approach that you're talking about? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I have been fortunate to, to be in um, First Nation communities across the province working uh, in the RCMP and obviously working now with Sutina Police. But I think what you see uh, that, that makes a little bit of a, a, a difference between the two models is in the RCMP, you have a staffing model where people transfer in and transfer out quite frequently. So Mm -hmm. the recognition, understanding, and relationships that are built uh, can can immediately leave when that officer or a group of officers leave. So it it makes it more challenging, I think, even from the officer perspective, because once you know your community, not only are you gaining trust and confidence with the community, but you're also understanding specific families, challenges with those families, some ways in which, again, to deal with them uh, in a relationship manner that you have a true understanding of their background. Uh, in the RCMP, their staffing model requires them to staff a lot of remote areas, a lot of areas that are challenging to staff. So they do have a rotating um, yeah. amount of officers. So here, you know, unless our officers choose to leave, uh, it's a could be a very much higher to retire where they know their community, the community knows us. And, you know, I think we are very fortunate here when we speak of our complement of police officers, uh, 26, that's that's a very good ratio cop to pop. Again, determining mm-hmm. what our actual population is challenging, but also recognizing that this nation has recognized the importance of community safety. So in the tripartite First Nation Indigenous Inuit policing program, it's funded in such a way that it's per officer. So we get funding per officer. We don't get a budget and then we determine how many officers. They tell us we're going to fund you 10 officers. And then we, that complement, we hire uh, support staff to take into account what that 
per officer funding is. So the province and the federal governments combined uh, support 10 officers here. So mm. 52% of that officer is paid by the feds, 48 by the province. And our additional complement of 16 is fully and completely funded by the nation. Oh, okay. I see. Well, and I heard, uh, I've mentioned on the podcast before, but I heard a stat somewhere where it was like, if for every constable on the street, it's like six or seven support staff behind the scenes. So you need more support staff <laughs> for the numbers that you're saying. Yeah. And, and really our, our, our growth is, is both required for our frontline response, but it's also required in the, in the support that those, uh, those people who come in that aren't sworn do and the, and the tremendous work that they do. So when you look at, again, the complement of officers, um, we are very fortunate and we do have a, a tremendous amount of support from the community. And it allows us an opportunity to do more things, whether that's community engagement, programming, prevention. Um, in the First Nation policing program, it's actually prohibited within our funding model that we form or are able to form specialized units. So obviously in Edmonton, Calgary and others, you have forensics, you have police dog services, you have traffic, you have just about everything in order to support frontline to do the work that they do and focus specifically in the areas that they need to. We mm -hmm. can't have that according to our terms and conditions of the agreement. So that immediately puts a barrier for some people who want a career in policing. We're fighting to, to change that legislation. But going into a, a career of policing, we know everyone wants to experience different professional development. That may be going to a specialized unit, a major crime section, uh, whatever you might see as, as a career opportunity and a path. But when you're being told all you can do is frontline policing, that's yeah. going to really put a barrier for some people to, to join that other, otherwise might say, gee, I think I like this, the, the model of policing. I just don't like the fact that I'm not going to get that opportunity that I could get with Calgary, Edmonton, and the, any other police service outside of First Nation policing. Yeah. Well, and so that's something that just comes from the previous, uh, I guess, previous legislation. Yeah. And it, what's the barrier to changing that? Like, why, why would any politician or whoever's making the decision say no if, if you can just say, hey, like we'll have our own forensics uh, tactical team or whatever. I don't have to keep calling these people. Uh, what are the reasons that they would say no? That's a great question. And the question I've asked <laughs> many, many times, and, and I wish I had an answer that I could tell you is reasonable and, and mm. something that, that makes sense to me. Um, the First Nation and Inuit policing program was established in 1992. It was revamped in 1993, and really very little has changed in over those 30 years. Um, the, the program itself is not funded as other policing programs are. We're not deemed an essential service. We are under the Federal Grants and Contributions Program, which means we're not funded long-term, very short-term. Um, as we stand today, I have no idea what my budget will be next year. I have not been mm. told, and what, we're three months away from from a, a fiscal April starting, I yeah. have no idea what that will be. I have no idea if I'm getting additional officers or there'll be additional funding. It makes it really challenging. It's a very much a year-to-year -year, um, funding model, and it doesn't allow us to strategize. It doesn't allow us to prepare 
doesn't allow us to plan. Yeah. But that program itself is so antiquated, it puts in other restrictions. Um, there was a terms and conditions document that supports the program document. And within those terms and conditions, and please recognize this is a 2017 terms and condition document. Again, it tells us discriminatorily, we can't form specialized units. It tells us we can't hire a lawyer to advocate for us if there's a disagreement in our funding and or the agreements we sign with the provincial or federal governments. Um, I don't know anywhere that tells you you can't have a lawyer. You can't be funded to have a lawyer. Yeah, it does sound strange on face value. I, I wouldn't be versed enough to get into the depths of that, but it does sound strange to me. Um, so do you, as your police service, do most of the rules and regulations you follow, are they more governed by uh, the province or more by the federal government? Or a mix, I guess. It, it is a mix. And it's... It, <laughs> Quite frankly, we don't seem to get the best of whatever it is from a provincial side if it if it means that we fall under uh, provincial jurisdiction. We do for policing. It is a, a provincial jurisdiction. So we fall under the Alberta Police Act. We mm-hmm. are required to undertake the same uh, audits that every other police service does. We have to meet those standards. We have to, Our training needs to be of the same standard. We have the same uh, requirements for any public complaints, our commissions. Everything is very much what you would experience in any other police service. Um, yet the program itself is a federal program. And the, mm. the feds are the ones who really draft the legislation. They're the 52% funder. And then we have our provincial and nation funders that are involved as well. But quite honestly, we generally... Um, we don't have the ability to negotiate, quite frankly. Um, we're being told this is what you get. You don't want it, don't sign. Oh, really? And it's, it's not a very uh, a collaborative model as it stands today. I know there's movement to change it, but uh, where that comes into play is pensions. If you're looking at our pension um, ability here in First Nations, and that, that also extends to the Blood Tribe Police Service, which is another First Nation service here in Alberta, as well as Lakeshore Regional Police Service. Mm-hmm. So we are precluded from being a part of the Special Forces Pension Plan. So the reason has been given to us from the board is that a Quebec Court of Appeal had ruled that the First Nation policing program is a federal program. Therefore, we cannot be a part of a provincial program like pension. Mm-hmm. So what that means is our officers can't contribute in the same way that others can. And the disparity, when we did a review about uh, a year and a half ago, the difference between our pension and the difference between a Calgary Police Service officer's pension for 25 years as a constable at their rate of pay that was there a year and a half ago would mean upwards of $1.3 million difference at the end of a career. Wow. And it's frustrating because they're telling us we fall under federal jurisdiction, yet we fall under the Alberta Police Act. And you can't can't contribute into what the bounties contribute into, but you can't contribute no. into what the provincial people per- contribute. Yes. So what are you in? You, it's just a self-funded one. Yeah, it's a nation pension plan. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a sunlight pension plan, and we are looking at increasing it. Um, the contribution levels from both the officer and from the service. But uh, the other area that's concerning to me 
is within that SFPP, the 29, I think it's 29 and a quarter percent total contributions that occur. There's also a contribution of 1.25% from the province of Alberta. Mm-hmm. The province of Alberta does not contribute 1.25 to our officers' yeah. pension. So you can see that that there's a a, a true disparity, mm-hmm. and in fact, I would I would suggest discriminatory practices that single us out is different. Uh, and as you said, there's no federally uh, run uh, pension program that's comparable. We cannot be a part of the RCMP Superannuation Act, um, and so. We're left again to to be supported through either our community nation, and it's in a it's at a lesser rate, it's at a lesser value, and it really does create that uh, that disparity where when we when we want to hire someone, we also want to retain them. Yeah, we want to keep our investment in them. Their investment in us is important to us, but we continue to lose our officers to more mainstream police services because of the disparities that exist. Mm-hmm. Um, well, maybe this, uh, we'll kind of move on to a, a topic that we've glanced over a bit so far, but, uh, when it comes to the sovereignty act, like what the province is looking at putting in here. And I find this very confusing when you read it in the news, because everybody gives a very different story, but can you tell us how this might, um, affect your service? Because from what I gather, I'm just trying to formulate my thoughts here, but um, a lot of the opposition that I've seen in the media is uh, either the First Nation groups are saying, um, you know, our agreements are with the federal government. So we don't kind of want to get screwed over in whatever way, you know, whatever group we're a part of. But then if a lot of the things fall under the province and I see lots of funding from the province, like lots of um, stuff being put out there saying we're supporting First Nations. So where where does everything kind of fall in here? Because it, it seems like a giant mess. <laughs> and where you know what does the Sovereignty Act really mean for the police services in particular? When it comes to the act or, or what is being proposed within the act, I think the voices in in First Nation communities in Alberta have ver- been very loud and very clear. They're not in support of it. They weren't consulted, from my understanding. Mm. Um, I'm certainly not in a in a governmental leadership position on First Nation to say it was or wasn't. But certainly, the messaging that I've been receiving by our leadership here and what I've heard from others is there was no consultation process. Um, as we all know, treaty is with the crown. Mm-hmm. The crown's representative in this country is the federal government. So treaty is a very important thing to recognize and understand. And those rights that are inherent rights are in the treaty. And if the federal government is not part of discussions in this model and the Sovereignty Act, it really eliminates the voice of First Nations. And, and I, I think they're, they're right to have said they're, they're not happy. And remember, they're, they're the first peoples of this country. Hmm. We, are, we are dealing with people that have been oppressed and have suffered and faced um, injustices that, that is only now really coming to light. And so we cannot blame uh, any of the communities, uh, the Indigenous communities within this province, to meet new legislation that hasn't had their, their, their even um, understanding is met in the best interests of their communities and, and their peoples. So I really do think that it, it's detrimental to the relationship. 
And I think we need to, again, listen to the voices that have been very clear about their, their thoughts and opinions. And uh, I know here that that is very much a, a concern within the Sutena Nation and in, in turn, a concern of mine here uh, in, in Sutena Nation Police Service. Well, and if the treaties are with the federal government um, and like a lot of your funding comes from them, I guess that makes it a really tough situation when the province is the one, like all the provinces are the ones responsible for their own uh, law enforcement. So do you see, foresee it in the future? Do you think there's going to be more of a First Nation presence when it comes to policing in their own areas? Or would that be something that maybe if a provincial police comes in, is there going to be some takeover of that? I mean, it's difficult to predict the future. I do know that I was involved in discussions with the province and uh, part of those discussions were with our nation leadership and they are completely opposed to the formation of a provincial police service. Once again, going back to treaty, who are their, who are their agreements, who are their uh, rights uh, entrenched with, and that's the crown. And they don't want to see a situation where their voice is not being heard and their rights are not being acknowledged. And I know here that they don't want the formation of that. They they understand um, the dynamics that currently exist uh, with the RCMP and how that, they, because when you're looking at the, um, at the Provincial Police Service Agreement, the service that is there to support smaller services that don't have capacity, whether it's forensics, uh, you know, tactical, whatever that might be, that we just don't have, uh, the capacity in which to deliver that policing, um, that is supposed to be done by the RCMP. Mm-hmm. Now, the RCMP are paid to do that. They're not doing it for free. Uh, the province pays them to support our smaller services within the province. And that, again, is something that I think could be worked on immediately. I think it would be uh, a quicker solution is to say, how can we fund the RCMP where they're able to provide that support in a timely way in a way that meets the needs of our community because they are uh, taxed. Let's be honest, the RCMP are understaffed. They have many communities to serve. Mm-hmm. And if we need uh, forensic identification at a scene, sometimes the only ability to get them here would be in two or three days. And we know the challenges that come with holding a scene for that length of time, the degradation of whatever's going to be collected, uh, all of those things. And, and so I would suggest that uh, the answer is 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 not for me to say which one is there, but perhaps we can look at a, a support mechanism where that's enhanced so we can get a timely uh, response to our policing needs. Perhaps, uh, again, when it comes to a provincial police service, uh, I think there needs to be further engagement. I think if the, the provincial government uh, would have some further discussions, what does that mean? Certainly, the nation does not want to see their police service go away and and a provincial police service take its place. They mm-hmm. they pay for that policing and they pay uh, a great deal amount. If you were to look at the funding that our police services receive each year from our nation, it's over $3 million. Mm-hmm. That's, that's three times the amount that the province and the federal governments uh, support us with. So they have a vested interest, they have a say, and they've actually, you know, um, taken a stand to say it's important to such a degree that we're going to pay for it. And I think if you're looking at a provincial police service, uh, I just hope that, again, there's further consultation. There's an understanding of why 
um, Indigenous communities may not be in favour of it. And I think resoundingly in most cases, and I've been a part of engagement discussions, and I've also been part of different treaties across the province where they've had discussions on policing. And I think there's some trepidation there. Mm -hmm. And I think, again, needs to be a clear understanding of how that would unfold, what that would mean, and uh, how that, again, could could support further support, perhaps is a better term, um, those smaller services and certainly Indigenous police service. Well, I wonder too, like if... If things are moving to the province having this, you know, more of a say, um, maybe these groups are worried about the erosion of the treaty rights um, because, you know, it's it's moving away from the person that you had the agreement with. However, I will also think too that maybe when things move more locally, like maybe it would be better to work with the province than trying to deal with Ottawa because we all know. Uh, Ottawa doesn't always have the best interests of everybody in mind. Um, so would it not be more, maybe more fruitful to work with the province than Ottawa? Uh, <laughs> it's a double-edged sword. Yeah. To put it <laughs> I do think, I do think that, um, again, both of our funding partners, our policing partners, that being the federal government, the provincial government do have, again, uh, the best of intentions. Um, but I think when when we continue to speak of the same issues that have been here for um, 30, 40, 50 years and very little has changed, I think it's important to to recognize that empathy and words are one thing. Action mm-hmm. is very different. And we want to change that empathy and understanding into action. So there's actual changes. And I think if you look at the more recent court cases, uh, they've indicated that, and these are courts of, of high levels. We're talking about appeals courts. Uh, the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal in February of 2022 ruled that the federal and provincial government are discriminatory in their funding of First Nation police services. Mm. Um, that's a, a fairly uh, terse term. It, 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 you said both the feds and the province. Yes, um, because we're underfunded. And, and again, it's really a federal program. And the the contributions of the province is often based upon the federal government. But then looking in December of 22, just just a mere month ago, uh, the Quebec Court of Appeal uh, decision. um, And I'm going to I'm going to say this because I think it's important to get the wording of a unanimous decision. Mm -hmm. Um, Is the government, the provincial and federal government are acting in an an unworthy uh, and abusive and dishonorable manner in regards to funding of Indigenous police services. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how how more it could be stated when you look at the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. There's a recommendation or rather a call to justice there where the immediate transformation of Indigenous policing to be equitable, comparable, and to the same levels as communities across this country. Uh, you know, when you look at the TRC, it, it the calls for action, they're all saying the same thing. And some of these are, are almost a decade old mm-hmm. um, when I'm speaking of, of these inquiries and commissions. And unfortunately, we've seen very little change in that time. So I think when we look at which government is supporting or not supporting, um, it's always challenging to know that. Without the federal government's 52%, we don't get the 48 from the province. Without the 48 from the province, we don't get the 52 from the feds. Mm-hmm. So 
in my experience, we we often in the past have been given explanations. It's not us, it's the other. And it's very, because we're not at the table, we're not even invited to the negotiation discussions on how that would be distributed. I can't say who it is that is supporting and who is not. I can certainly say now that we're getting a lot of support from Public Safety Canada in order to move First Nation policing into an essential service. The legislation will not be restrictive or discriminatory. The funding is hoped to be equitable Mm -hmm. to other services and communities. It will be flexible. I'm if I'm looking at my agreements, I'm being told what I can't do more than I, what I can do in spending yeah. that. And so we want it again, long-term where I don't have to two months down the road in my next year, I don't even know what I'm getting or what I'm not getting, which is, is just as important. I don't know how I'm going to manage um, the existing resources we have. And it, it's, it's unbelievably challenging, especially coming from a different policing model, a, a different environment where these challenges don't exist. And even when you're looking at First Nation policing in the province of Alberta, the RCMP receive a per officer funding at a greater level than we do. Mm -hmm. And that's for an enhanced position. So that's called a community tripartite agreement. We fall under a tripartite agreement. So the province and the federal governments fund what they call as enhanced positions to First Nation communities to do work like um, collaboration, outreach, prevention, so that we'll call them enhanced. And we're not funded at that same level for core policing. Mm-hmm. So again, if 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 you were to ask me which uh, funding partner or which government um, is better to work with, I, I, I think it really depends on the year. I think mm-hmm. it depends on the situation. And, <clears throat> but we're beholden to both, let me put it that way. Mm-hmm. And so it does make it a, a very difficult journey to try and see the gains that are that are long overdue. So how can you not be classified as an essential service? I find that interesting. So, uh, like, are you allowed to strike? There's nothing within any of the legislation that does say we can or can't. And as far as the term essential services, our community has always in our communities, there's 36 self-administered police services, Indigenous police services across this country. And we have approximately 630, just over 630 First Nation communities across the country. So you can see we're actually part of policing in a very small portion. Mm -hmm. But when we're looking at essential services, each one of those communities have always recognized us as being essential. It just means that the legislation doesn't term it in that ways. So we have imposed restrictions that others wouldn't. Yeah. And it allows, again, a different funding model that doesn't equate to what others are getting. It's anywhere between 25 and 30% less funding we receive comparatively to what we'll call mainstream policing across this country. Okay. Um, I think it's a good discussion on the, the funding. And uh, maybe we'll move on to a bit on the Police Act reform. So uh, obviously this has some bearing on what you guys are doing down there. Does um, you know, anything coming out of that in particular that stands out for you uh, and your police service? I think, I think everybody recognized that the, it was long overdue for reform mm-hmm. within the Police Act. Um, I know there was some consultation that occurred uh, provincially. There's discussions in, in our communities about that. Um, I, I, think, I think there are some very important amendments and movement that's occurred 
there's a couple of areas of concern that that we've identified. Um, once again, it, we don't yet have that investigative body for uh, that will be formed, much like ACERT for the serious and sensitive. This will involve public complaints against against police officers or police services. Um, that independence, independence and objectivity is, I think, a good thing. I think the challenges that come with that is our citizens here uh, haven't developed an understanding of trust yet with that group. I don't know what sort of cultural training they may have because, you know, how we approach people in trying to work to understand the problem is not like it is in other jurisdictions. So it's about the cultural competency of the people doing that work. That's important. It's about the confidence and trust that our community have in those that are doing that. And what sort of voice are they going to listen to? Um, how much will they listen? So that in itself is yet to be determined. I hope that it will um, move towards getting a better understanding of how that could support the, the Indigenous communities. Um, when you look at public complaints, we receive, I'm not suggesting that, that we're perfect by any stretch, but we have a, a process here that's called peacemaking. So it, it's in our criminal court systems, and it's also used in HR issues. It can be used in any dispute resolution, and it involves mediators, nation members, elders that are trained in order to come to a, I mean, when you say successful conclusion, or at least some sort of understanding of, of restorative justice, whatever that might mean. It requires both parties or, or groups to be involved and agree to be involved. It, it's a holistic approach. And I think we use that quite frequently here. And when we're looking at public complaints that go formal, um, we have less than a handful every year, one, two, maybe. So I think there has to be other ways of dealing with this that's more culturally sensitive to the areas that we are. And I'm not even saying that it needs to be Indigenous uh, sensitive. It could be to the community. Every community is different. The sentiments and what they believe should occur should be taken into account. Not always so easy. I get that. Mm -hmm. But uh, it, it is something that I'm interested to see how that will evolve. The other area that um, was really news to me that I hadn't heard in any of the discussions is uh, the provincial appointment of commission members. Yes. Um, we have our commission consists of four um, community members that, again, th go through nation's leadership. And it's an appointment, just like it is uh, in any other commission. We have two council representatives, uh, minor chiefs, if you will, that also sit on the commission. And I think they're, they're, should it get to the point where the province is indicating we are going to appoint a provincial representative on your commission, uh, I think that might be something that is not supported here. Mm -hmm. uh, again, does that individual know anything about the community? The commission guide us. They, they provide that that support to us to understand what we should be doing and how we should be doing it. Um, and they're a very strong oversight that have a community lens. So introducing someone else who may not have it, has no understanding, that could prove problematic. So those are the two areas that we've identified as potential concerns without seeing exactly how that will unroll and, and whether or not those provincial appointments occur on First Nations is yet to be seen. Well, and... Um... Yeah, there, there's quite a few changes coming. One of the things I brought up with um, when we had our chief uh, on the program here was just about the the community safety plans. 
and just implementing those. So is there anything, any unique, uh, say, issues that a First Nation, such as your own, might have that you have to deal with when you're considering the plans, I guess? Well, we have, when I was speaking earlier about the uniqueness of, of communities, it, it doesn't speak specifically to Indigenous communities, but in, in speaking to our case in particular, we live next door. And when I say next door, we mm-hmm. are kissing cousin neighbors. We You cross the street, you're now in Calgary, you cross the street the other way, and you're on Sutena. So we have 1.4 million people living next door to us, uh, which is very different than many communities in northern and more remote locations. So we have that um, criminal creep that comes from Calgary, and many times people don't even know that they're on Sutena Nation. And so our safety plan would be very different. It has an urban um, an urban flavor to it, if you will, because mm. we do see uh, a more urban crime model that can come into to our to our community. It provides access to criminals who are looking to take advantage, whether that's through uh, the citizens here or the businesses that are here. It it's really uh, an interesting concept because. With this growth in commercial development come many opportunities, but it also comes with significant challenges. And recognizing three years ago, uh, our officers didn't go to shoplifting calls. Yeah, um, that was something in in when I was doing uh, policing in Red Deer and, and larger centers for McMurray, uh, we can honestly say we'd go to at least one a day. So what you were doing and how you did it um, was second nature. When we're looking at hold up alarms, those things that other Policing services that do this every day, they understand how to approach that. Ours is new. We're we're having to have many of our officers have not done larger center policing. So our 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 safety plans are ongoing. They're being developed each and every day as we see new commercial development arise. And it's uh it's a work in progress, but uh really ultimately it it underlines the 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 community safety and the importance of ensuring that doesn't deteriorate as these developments uh, increase. Oh, well, no, that sounds good. I, I know you guys are right there on the, the corner of Calgary. And do you, um, do you find you have a, a lot of overlap with the Calgary police or is most of your services, like any of the extra units that you call in, is that always RCMP that has to come in? No, we, we do rely heavily um, on the Calgary police service. When it comes to those situations that are more... Um, longer in duration and require uh, a, a longer investment from whomever it is, whether it's CPS or RCMP. Again, we look to the RCMP. They're the ones who are paid to do that work and they're a very strong and good partner with us. If they do not have the capacity ability or, or, or it's just not possible, um, then we would look to Calgary. But I also want to recognize the fact that we do support Calgary in the same way. Mm-hmm. If they have a situation in one of their neighboring districts here, our officers will go in there, um, be part of containment. Uh, we, we've helped them uh, in sudden deaths where, again, we had specific equipment, ATVs that could support um, yeah. recovery that couldn't be done otherwise. It is a give and take situation. And it is it is something that, that on the front line, it's seamless. We don't share the same communications with them, which can be problematic. Um, but we don't share the same record management system, which can be problematic. Yeah. But we, we have workarounds to that. And uh, it, it really is a, a good relationship. And I think like everywhere across this province and across the country, um, we are providing each other tremendous support. And it's done most often 
uh, without any cost associated. They recognize, as do we, um, that that we're in this together. And mm-hmm. community public safety is is something we all are invested in. Well, I know, just especially still being on the front line level, uh, lots of guys like creeping over the borders and finding new territory to kind of explore. So. I don't think they're going to ever tell anybody half the time when they go out there. <laughs> they're not worried about the bill. No, I think you're right. And, and uh, as I say, we, we do have, uh, for a period of time, we had an exchange program where we had Calgary Police Service officers come here mm-hmm. and work with our officers for a period of time. And the same occurred in Calgary. So, and it really orbited around the three districts which surround uh, the Sutena Nation. So that, that really supported and assisted us for sure. Um, so we're kind of coming to the end of our time. There's two things I want to just make sure we cover. One uh, is what's kind of coming up in the future for your police service. Uh, any news that you can put out there And at this point? You know what? I, I wish I had a whole bunch of great news. I think um, if, if you recall or anyone who's listening on the podcast that um, in June of this year, last year now, um, 2022, the province had a uh, announcement where there would be an infusion of 15 officers, five new officers to each one of our services that were mm-hmm. um, 100% funded by the province. Um, the unfortunate thing, we don't know what that looks like yet. We haven't seen any increases. We don't know how that will uh, roll itself out. Um, we do know that in working with Public Safety Canada, we've uh, received some, some incredible support uh, through them in looking at an increase to our officer complement. So we start to see um, the ability for growth. Uh, here on Sutina, if it weren't for the nation, if we're looking at provincial and federal complement funding, uh, we've only had one officer increase in 13 years. Wow. Uh, indigenous wow. communities are the fastest growing communities in Canada. What we're seeing around us and how this is the growth is occurring, it, there's no way we could do that police work if it were only for that funding. Mm-hmm. And so we hope not only do we see an increase in, in officer complement funding from the provincial and federal government, we also hope that they recognize that there has to be equitable funding where we are allowed to compete with other police services. We know policing is a competitive market right now. Mm-hmm. We know that many police services are actively recruiting experienced officers from everywhere else. We are easy pickings, I hate to say it. We have tremendous officers with skills that are transferable. Uh, that are committed to community policing. And so we're attractive. And unfortunately, over the last two years, we've lost six members to the Calgary Police Service. So all the investment we made leaves mm-hmm. um, and we have staffing gaps. And again, if you were to look, uh, if we do the numbers for, say, our frontline uh, watches that we have, the teams, that's one third of our operational frontline in two years. Yeah, And I challenge any police service in this country um, Edmonton, Calgary, anyone else, what would happen if you lost one third of your frontline operations in that span of time? How do you manage recruitment? How do you manage making those gaps so our officers don't have additional work that are in a safe environment with the right amount of people? And our community, most importantly, receives the protection that they pay very well for. Um, it's a, a huge challenge. And so my hope is, is that we are allowed to compete Mm-hmm. Um, right now, we're not even on the same playing field, and uh, I do not, I do not begrudge the officers for taking care of their futures. Uh, but when you're not even given the same equipment as the other services, you're not given uh, the same opportunity and abilities. It makes it really difficult. So um, my hope is, is as we move forward, 
that uh, we look at legislative change that changes that program to an essential service where it's equitable funding, where we're allowed to um, be able to, to pay our officers commensurately at other services do. Our benefit packages are similar. Our pension plans yeah. are same or at least comparable, uh, but they're not currently. And once we do have that, I, I'm assured that we will see First Nation flourish where we will keep people for longer periods of time, where we will see, um, again, um, experience stay instead of experience go. Mm-hmm. So, I, I, you know, it, it isn't doom and gloom. I'm not here to, to say that this is horrible. We, despite all of those things, uh, I think we are doing across this country a phenomenal job. And you spoke to it earlier, Nathan, when we were talking about the expansion of First Nation policing. I think uh, if you look at Siksika, they're they're forming their own self-administered uh, First Nation police service. Uh, James Smith Cree, um, again, have been given support through the federal and provincial governments that they will be forming that. I get calls weekly from communities across the country wondering how can they start their own self-administered police service. And it's not to say their policing that's there now is bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just want to have the ability to understand and have a voice in that policing, maybe more than it is currently. They want to see a reflection in their police service. They want to see the values of their community within that police service. And I can, I can be, I can, I can see in the future that we will see many, many more self-administered established. I just hope that we stabilize the existing ones now. Yeah. Um, let's not bring on more to face the same problems. Let's stabilize this. Let's get us on equal footing. Let's give us an opportunity to compete. And when we are given that, just watch what we can do. Well, I think it would make sense to kind of get the the model right or as as close as possible, I guess. Um, and then maybe expand out rather than just everybody's expanding. And then we got a whole bunch of things you want to deal with. So what I think is a good segue into uh, how can people follow your work and your police services work. So where can they uh, find you all? You can you can find us in in multiple multiple uh, media platforms. Uh, LinkedIn. You can see us in Facebook. You can see us on Twitter. Um, you know, it 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 really is where where we have our own website. I I really think that uh, you know if if anyone has a true interest in understanding more, uh, we're always welcoming people to come visit our service to come see our community. And we encourage people to to see what we're doing, <clears throat> see that despite all that we talked about, <clears throat> there's some amazing work being done. Mm-hmm. And so I encourage anybody with questions to to ask them. Yeah. Again, you can call our service. I'll I'll speak to whomever it is and and offer what I can. So I I, I put that out there in the, or any social media platform that we exist on. Much appreciated. Um, when I do post the episode, I always put all the links in. So I'll kind of scrape as many as I can off of all the various platforms and put them on there. Um, so I want to say thanks for coming on. If you can hang on the line just for a minute, I'll say bye offline. We'll stop the recording, but uh, thank you very much for coming on. No, thanks, Nathan. And again, I just want to extend my appreciation for this opportunity. Uh, and I really do also want to extend my appreciation to the Edmonton Police Service. Um, they're an amazing policing partner for us. I know we've got some connections and uh, again, it's always encouraging to see how we can work so well together. So thank you. Great.